We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up? Late on a Friday, I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Today, we got a little bit of a lighter show. It is the return of Mailbag Friday. The People's Holiday is back. First time in probably a year and a half or so that we've done Mailbag Friday. Uh, was kind of in between guests, got some stuff lined up for next week, but I figured I'd put out a third show. So why not bring the People's Holiday back as the content schedule is hit? A little bit of a lull, at least from an Ole Miss baseball perspective, which uh, we'll get into here in a little bit with a couple of the questions, but figure I'd bring it back. So uh, this will be about 45 minutes to an hour of just me. So uh, I'm sorry or thank you. Buckle up. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. It's the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. If you're not a member of Skybox, you need to. Skybox NASCAR, currently crushing it over there. Mark Harris and the guys at NASCAR, if you want to get into wagering, uh, maybe an off-the-grid sport, Skybox NASCAR was uh, definitely the place for you. Maybe you like NASCAR and you want to profit off of it. I promise you, Mark Harris and the guys at Skybox NASCAR will lead you to profit. Build up your bankroll before football season. They're the best gambling handicapping website in the world. Go ahead and sign up for their year-round all-purpose package. But if you're looking for something a little more specific, they've got you can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can do all sports, sports-centric. They're already geared up for football season. I cannot wait. You should, too. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. When you go online and buy a picks package, just type in the promo code RIPPY, that's R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off any purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Grow see Greg, if you're Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, the Rippy Wright special is three six-ounce Bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. It's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Can't beat that. Go in there, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up with the Rippy Right special. Then go find all of your own favorites. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of meat, fresh seafood, all kinds of awesome sausages. I like the tri tip and the filet burgers with whatever sausage Greg recommends. It's growing season. You need to go in, check out LB's. He wants to make your growing experience great. Go stop by today, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, 
bringing back Mailbag Friday. For uh, those of you who are new to the podcast, Mailbag Friday was something I started when uh, I first started doing this podcast, probably all the way back to the Super Talk days when I was forced to get a podcast and had no idea what the hell I was doing. Really not an innovative concept. I'm not acting like I invented it here. Someone sends questions, you answer them. Uh, I don't think I'm the first guy to ever do that, but we started doing it. I started calling it the People's Holiday. I don't really know why. It's just like the Skybox ad. We're uh, glad you asked. Don't really know where that came from. Just popped in and it stuck. But as the podcast kind of grew, got in uh, in with Rebel Grove and everything kind of took off from there, I thought, you know what? I probably owe the listeners some little better content than just one of the three shows being me answering questions for 45 minutes. Not sure how great a content that is. So we started going away from it as I got regular guests and, you know, Weldon and Colin and everyone in the middle and started getting on a regular schedule from football to basketball to baseball season. But uh Anyway, now that it's not a regular thing, I bring it back every once in a while, and this was a nice place to do it. So basically, here's how it works. I took questions on Twitter and on the message board. I will then answer them, and that is the entirety of the game. That is all there is to it. So we'll dive into it. Um, appreciate everyone's submissions. A little lighter response on Twitter. Hadn't I don't know if it hadn't done one in a while. I don't know if Twitter is just not it's not the place to submit questions now. Certainly not blaming the listeners. I'm going to point the blame first, or at least my suspicion for the blame on Elon Musk. Maybe he's changed the algorithm. Maybe he's pissed about blowing up that rocket last week and was like, "Look, if I can't have success, this guy can't either. Let's screw this kid." I don't know. But either way, we got a healthy number of questions between Twitter and the message boards. Just a little lighter on the message boards, or excuse me, on the Twitter side than usual. But uh, if you want to participate in next Mailbag Friday next time, just go find me on Twitter or on the message board, and I will submit. Uh, a feed of questions or a tweet on uh, both of those, and you too can participate in the people's holiday. I guess we'll get going right off the bat. We did get one email question. I don't know who it's from because their email is just a bunch of jumbled up letters. This looks like some initials and numbers, but uh, it's a pretty simple one to start off. What's wrong with the baseball team? What a poignant question that is. I don't know. How much time do you have? I'll I'll answer this in in a serious way. I don't exactly know. Look, Ole Miss has had injuries. We've talked about this ad nauseum. I don't want to rehash Colin and I's Sunday pod that we've done. <laughs> Feels like Groundhog Day for each of the last month. But at 3-15, and 15, Ole Miss should not be this bad. Injuries aside, look, I know Hunter Elliott got some bad news earlier or, uh, earlier this week where he will not be pitching this weekend after briefly returning against LSU and then apparently feeling some more discomfort. I would be utterly stunned if Hunter Elliott pitched at, uh, at Ole Miss, excuse me, not at Ole Miss, pitched for Ole Miss again this season. Um, you know, hope for the best for the kid. Hopefully he doesn't need surgery because at this point, uh, if it is something again, related to the elbow and you potentially need Tommy John, that would probably be the last time Hunter Elliott ever pitched for Ole Miss being last weekend. I just wouldn't see a way that he would return, uh, next year with the timeline of Tommy John being, you know, at least 12 months, barring some pretty rare exceptions. I don't know if that's the case. I'm just speculating here. Um, I hope that is not the case for him, but Outside of that, even with the injuries to Hunter Elliott, to Josh Mallett, you now have got Riley Maddox back. So it's really just two guys that you've lost to injury. This team should not be this bad. This should not be 3-15. and 15. If this team were 6-12 and 12 with Hunter Elliott on the shelf, I'd say, okay, I kind of get it, right? You don't have a dominant Friday guy. You've probably been caught up on the wrong end of most Friday night games. And, you know, the other two, you're just not regularly winning enough to win enough series. I would get that piece of it. But Ole Miss hasn't actually even fared that badly on Fridays. Jack Doherty, for the role that he's been asked to play, that's kind of an unfair one for what he is as a pitcher, has actually been pretty good. 
Um, and so that's not been their issue. It's the fact that they're like scoring three and a half runs a game per Sunday. That's just never going to win you any Sunday games. It's the fact that the offense really is one of the worst in the SEC. It was a bottom two offense for the first four weeks of SEC play in terms of conference only stats. And now it's kind of, I would say, moved up a little bit, but they're basically a bottom four offense in the conference. And that was just never supposed to be the case. When you look back at it, back at it now in retrospect, some of it makes sense, I guess. Remember when the team was struggling last year, and Colin brought up this point a few weeks ago, and it was it was a good one. Is the that who was it? It was Jacob Gonzalez was not hitting very well. Peyton Chatagnier was not hitting very well. T.J. McCants was struggling. Some of the other guys outside of the Graham, the benches, the Elkos were not performing very well, and so the offense struggled for the middle part of 2022. As a result, really until the calendar turned to about you know. First week of May, mid-May, when they started to turn things around. And you think, coming into this year, all right, they only have to replace like four, three, four spots in the lineup. They bring back six guys. This offense should continue to roll with what they added in the portal. Well, they're replacing the guys that sort of catalyzed them when things weren't going well and kept them afloat. And the guys that returned were largely some of the up and down guys that went through you know good stretches and bad stretches, but certainly weren't consistent enough to perform uh, to at least comprise a good offense off across the 30-game SEC slate. And so now you're seeing a little bit more of that. You know, Jacob Gonzalez has been really good for most of the year. Kemp Alderman is having a hell of a year, and it's a damn shame it's coming uh, in a year where the team is just miserably bad from a record standpoint because that will be one of the more underrated seasons in Ole Miss history just because I don't think it will hold up well hist historically in terms of people's memory because in all likelihood this team's not accomplishing really anything at all in the postseason probably don't even make Hoover at this point. And so it'll get lost, but he's having a good year. But outside of that, it's just been a huge struggle. TJ McCants has not performed very well since conference play has started. Uh, Peyton Chatagnier has not, that would be putting it mildly. Ethan Leger has actually been one of their better hitters for the last three, four weekends, but for the first couple weekends and certainly in the early part of the year in the non-conference slate, he was not swinging it very well. Ethan Gross been okay, but that's not a lineup carrier. Same with Anthony Clarko. He's been pretty good, but certainly has not been a guy that's put up numbers that will anchor uh, a lineup. And Calvin Harris been pretty good too. Can't really knock him. So it's really been the Harris and Alderman show. I'd give Gonzalez a B plus in terms of his offense performance on the year. And then you kind of got six holes and that's way too many in a nine-person lineup. And that coupled with the fact that the pitching injuries have moved you know, some guys around and really had a trickle-down effect beyond just the two dudes and three guys, I guess, if you include Riley Maddox, who is now back as of this podcast, that has had a bit of a trickle-down effect, and it's led to them struggling to get outs and their bullpen being very thin. But that being said, is the bullpen supposed to be that thin? Look, I get taking Jack Doherty out is a huge loss. But beyond that, even without Maddox and without Mallets, it, was it like, does that speak to the lack of depth at all? The fact that Mitch Morrell, who's a guy that didn't really contribute in big spots at any point in his career until this year, is the only guy you trust to consistently get outs? That speaks to a larger problem about a lack of depth on the pitching staff and a recruiting and a program depth thing. I don't think that's just unique to this year. And that's what's going to be fascinating to me about this offseason is you're now going to enter, I guess this would be year three of the transfer portal window. Um, with, you know, one-time free transfer, NIL being incorporated that, I kind of lumped all of these new conditions together. Kind of the new version of college athletics with NIL and the transfer portal. And Ole Miss is really yet to bring in any game changers in two years in the transfer portal. 
Um, you know, Jack Washburn was a guy that they thought might be a weekend guy uh, for them last year. Uh, uh, John Gaddis was as well. And neither one of those guys, while they did help the team get out in Omaha, ended up finding roles in the postseason. Neither one of them were weekend guys that you relied on. OK, this guy's going to help you make it through 10 SEC weekend. They just they just weren't. Um, Anthony Clarko has been a pretty good pickup. Ethan Leger has been a pretty good pickup. And I'd say Ethan Groff has as well. But again, not really any game changers in there. And on the hitting side, you didn't figure they necessarily needed that, but you certainly figured they needed an arm or two. I know Nick Pogue, the Florida transfer that they landed, but end up deciding to turn pro kind of screwed them a little bit. But point being, they really haven't had a transfer where you've looked at it and was like, man, where would they be without this guy? And yes, it's a small sample size, but that's exactly what they're about to have to do this offseason in a year where they return almost no one from the lineup. Think about it. Alderman, gone. Harris, gone. I would imagine McCants and Chatagnier, gone. Gonzalez, gone. I don't think Groff has another year. I'll have to double check on Leger, but that Clarko, gone. So that's pretty much your entire lineup. So are you really going to replace all of that with guys you've recruited out of high school? Because if you look at this current incoming class, it's decent, but not great. Last year's pretty good, not you know elite by any stretch. So I would imagine they're going to have to use the portal. And let's just say you have a healthy Hunter Elliott back next year. They need to go find a dude to replace him. And that's something they've yet to be able to do. And again, that's not really a knock on them yet because of the small sample size, but it is a different way of constructing a roster on a year in and year out basis than Mike Bianco has been accustomed to doing for 20 something years. And it's one of those things, it's like adapt or die. This is kind of the new world that they live in. And will they be able to do that? I, I don't know. Uh, I I don't, I really don't have a ton of reason to doubt Mike Bianco, given the body of work in his career, but it is something drastically different than what he's used to. And for a pitching staff that largely looks the same, it's a lot of right-handed guys that throw in the low 90s with a pretty good slider. And then I don't know, do you throw a changeup or a curveball? It's kind of the the fitting, that's kind of the bill that most of these arms fit. There's not a lot of diversity there. It's a lot of uniformity, and that's not really what you want. You'd like to have some guys that offer you some different things. Can they find that out of the high school ranks? Can they find that out of the portal? I'm curious to figure that out. But point being, the way they kind of approach this entire year-to-year roster building and program building is going to change. And I imagine it's already changing, but I think next season is going to be the first litmus test of whether they've been able to successfully do that or not because they're now going to come off of what seemingly barring a miraculous turnaround is going to be a putridly bad season one that's uncharacteristic of anything that we've ever been used to in the Mike Bianco era and then they lose everybody and they're going to have to find a way to be good and be competitive next year and I imagine they're going to have to do a lot of that through different means of roster building and program building than they have in the past And that's what I'm fascinated by. So in a way, it's like kind of a, I don't want to say the program is at a crossroads by any stretch of the imagination, but it has reached an interesting inflection point after two bad regular seasons, this ridiculously hot six-week stretch that won them a national title. And that's not taking away or diminishing anything from the national title in between. What happens next? Because I think a bad mark in a regular season next year will leave people with a lot of very valid questions about the long-term future of this program. That is in no way to success Mike Bianco will be on the hot seat next year. I'm not going that far, but I just do find all of that fascinating. So it's going to be an interesting offseason. I don't even know if that answered the question about what's wrong with the team, but my ultimate answer is they've had some injuries, but it should not be this bad. And it is bad, bad right now. 
All right, let's dive into some of the Twitter questions real quick. Where do we want to start? Maxwell Slim Peasy. How to still to this day, two years doing Mailbag Friday, don't understand a ton of these Twitter names, but he chimes in and asks, it's business, but that sucks for Corral, right? Yeah, I mean, it does. Um, definitely tough break, right? They come in, he comes in last year, gets drafted in the, was that second or third round? I guess third round by the Carolina Panthers. They enter a year where they have Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold. I don't know if Matt rule was a lame duck head coach, but it certainly was one of the kind of three, four candidates of first coach fired. He was certainly on the hot seat. Baker Mayfield struggles. Sam Darnold comes in after being hurt, doesn't perform much better. And it becomes a revolving door of quarterbacks throughout the year. But, of course, Corral had the Liz Frank injury in camp and missed the entire year. And you figure with the way their season went, I find it very hard to believe that at some point he would not have gotten the chance to play in and probably start an NFL game in multiple NFL games, just given the way the Panther season had gone. And who knows how that would have happened. I wasn't of the belief that Corral was immediately ready to play in the NFL coming out of college, but at least would have given you some sort of sample size and a chance for him to prove himself. He doesn't get that because of injury. Carolina's the worst team in the National Football League, gets the number one overall pick, and takes a quarterback, takes Bryce Young. And can you blame him? Of course not. So it's a little bit of unfortunate luck in that sense. But Corral, I don't think, was ever a guy that they, from day one, were thinking, we're going to build our franchise around this guy. It felt like a third-round flyer on a guy that had a hell of a college career and had a ton of talent. So, yes, that does suck for Corral, but I don't think he was robbed of any sort of guaranteed opportunity. He's now just going to take a back seat to another young quarterback that they are clearly investing all of their future in because they drafted him, Bryce Young, with the number one overall pick. So, yes, bad luck, bad timing, but I think Corral will catch on somewhere else and probably at some point get some sort of opportunity to move into a backup role. And then from there, you never know. It's the old cliche. You're only one injury away from being the guy. So, yes, a little bit of poor luck. Um, you would have liked to have seen him get on the field last year because it certainly seems like he would have had the opportunity, if not for the injury. But this is also not some career-altering thing, and I don't think if, you know, Corral never gets his shot, for, let's say, I don't think there's going to be a bunch of people sitting around being like, man, what would have happened if he'd ever gotten the shot and had better luck in Carolina? Just not one of those situations. All right, let's move it on here. Jackson Norris checks in and says, all I heard Kentucky game was Levis was a top 10 pick. What happened? Yeah, tough night last night as I record this on a Friday for Will Levis. He is a product of what I would call the NFL draft machine. What is the NFL draft machine? It's falling in love with a guy who did not have great numbers in college. You had two candidates for the NFL draft machine. You could say just two guys were products of the NFL draft machine. One turned out, successfully in terms of getting selected higher than probably what he showed in college in Anthony Richardson getting selected in the top five by the Indianapolis Colts. And then you have Will Levis who goes, gets invited to the, attend the draft, goes to the draft and then does not go in the first round. And that's always tough seeing that guy in the green room where apparently every news network and every social media outlet just has to comment on the dude who sat there longer than he's supposed to. I get it. Seems like low hanging fruit. But whatever, that's always just tough to watch. But you guys, most of the listeners of this podcast, I imagine all listeners of this podcast, watch a lot of college football. And did any of you watch Anthony Richardson or Will Levis at any point last year and think, hmm, number one overall pick? In Richardson's situation, he's an absolute measurables freak. He looks great. 
He's strong. He has a huge arm. So that would be a more likely candidate of, okay, I can see why scouts would fall in love with this guy and he would become kind of the hype machine guy coming into the uh, NFL offseason leading up to the draft process. It's one of those every year. Levis, I never really got it. And if you look back, if you actually look at where all the whole Will Levis, could he be a first-round pick, started, it really started with his offensive coordinator, Vic. I think his name is what, uh, Rich Scangarello? Comes in, was a McVeigh guy, gets hired by Kentucky uh, last year uh, in Stoops to run, uh, to run the offense. And things did not go very well, but he made a comment early on. I want to say it was early in the season and maybe before Kentucky had even played a game and said, this guy could be the number one overall pick in the draft. And that's an NFL guy saying that, who's worked on a ton of NFL staffs, been in the McVay-Shanahan tree for a long time. That's kind of his coaching background, his coaching pedigree. And it seemed like everyone just took it and ran with it. Because to be honest, a ton of NFL teams, some of the, I mean, scouting department aside, but their large level front office guys are not doing a ton of homework in season on college football. They're just not. I mean, it's, it's proven every single year. So I felt like that, I hate this word, narrative was just kind of ran with in the absence of any real tangibles, right? You didn't hear when Will Levis has one of the strongest, maybe the strongest arm in the draft. Boy, can the guy really spin it. He's a project, but you can really develop him. That's what you all heard about Richardson. With Levis, I just never really understood it. Like, what was his overlying trait? He does some things pretty well, but there was never any one or two things that he just innately did incredibly well that would lead you to believe that, hey, even though it didn't work out great in college and his team wasn't great and they didn't have a great record, that that would change in the NFL. So I never understood the Levis thing. And the only thing I can contribute it to is that a former NFL coordinator who coached him his last year of college said, man, this guy could be the number one overall pick. And the echo chamber did its thing, and it was just spoken into existence, despite really anything happening during the season and throughout the combine and everything else to suggest that. So wish the kid well, hope he gets drafted on Friday, but I just never really understood that one. There's usually one NFL draft machine guy per year that ends up getting picked higher. He felt like the, well, the second of two this year, and guess what? Richardson gets picked, he doesn't, and that's how that played out, so... I don't know. We'll see. I think this is a weak quarterback class, and I'm not sure any of these guys are franchise guys outside of potentially Bryce Young, because despite his size, my God, that guy was a wizard at Alabama. Just go watch that Ole Miss game. I saw some Ole Miss fans on Twitter being like, I don't get it. Like Ole Miss like, contained him well. He won that game for them. He was unbelievable in terms of avoiding pressure. Ole Miss got pretty good pressure, kind of dominated what was an uncharacteristically bad Alabama offensive line. And Young just made things happen. And he's a very smart football player. He's incredibly accurate, and he's got a pretty damn good arm. So size aside, I think he's got a shot. These other guys, mm, I don't really get it. But, hey, quarterback is the hottest commodity in professional football. And there's going to be four dudes a year that everyone talks themselves into, whether they're actually NFL or franchise-level caliber quarterbacks or not. All right, keeping it moving here. Silly man, chilly man, checking in. Long-time mailbag Friday participant, because I've said that name a bunch of times, asked, will there be a horse betting podcast for the upcoming Kentucky Derby? Absolutely. You bet your ass they will. There will be. We'll get Greg on next week. Greg actually, not spoiling anything here, just purchased a horse. So we're going to have him come on and explain why he bought said horse to accompany meat sweats in the LB's horse racing arsenal and what he sees in that. And then also we'll handicap and get his thoughts on the Kentucky Derby. So to answer your question, Absolutely. Greg actually sent me a message earlier today of a tweet, which I thought was very funny, where there's a guy on Twitter 
that covers, I guess he covers horse racing or horse racing sale sales. Um, the guy's account is at swift hitter. So F S W I F T hitter. And he posts a screenshot and says, someone bought a horse and hit me up. And some of you hit me up saying, who is the meat man? So under the, <laughs> under the name of the person who purchased the horse, it says meat man. And then the guy says, relax. He actually sells meat and steaks for a living and of course he's talking about our man lb's greg so greg buys the horse and apparently it goes into the system as meat man has just purchased this horse so there's your uh, horse content update we'll get greg on to talk more about that <laughs> next week maybe name the horse as far as i know the only name the horse has right now is a uh, horse so maybe we'll take submissions for a name i don't know but yes be looking forward to that next week we will absolutely have a horse betting and horse racing handicapping podcast ahead of the Kentucky Derby. All right. I think this is our last Twitter question, but I will double check it. Tim Peeler checking in here asks, what are some things you never go cheap on? Example, toilet paper, because you end up paying for it in one of two ways. Amen to that, brother. That's probably the best answer. I don't go cheap on toilet paper. I worked at a place one time that uh, their office bathroom had single ply, and I just... I had a meltdown one day. I was like, what is this? This is a multi-billion dollar corporation. And you got guys with single ply sandpaper in the stalls dealing with that every day. How am I supposed to perform with that going on in the bathroom? I never actually raised those concerns because I was a nobody at said company, just a low level grease peddler. But it did make me think, how are we supposed to perform our best every day with, you know, discomfort down there because of the tools at our disposal, um, you know, on the field per se. Uh, when the show, when the lights come on, we did not have the tools to deal with. So toilet paper is a good one. Another one I'll give you, I had some flight thoughts as I'm in Dallas, Texas, came here for the weekend to see MC um, as I got delayed for four hours in the Memphis airport the other night and ended up landing in Dallas at one on a flight that was supposed to take off at 7 p.m. Um, so I had some flight questions, but I that did make me think of, I never go cheap on airline wi-fi i know everyone's like oh waste of money eight nine bucks i certainly get that vantage point but i'm going to spend eight or nine bucks in a dumber way so why not just be able to be on your phone and be on the internet for the hour and a half or two hours or help three four hours you're on a flight however long it is i don't mind paying eight or nine bucks for flight wi-fi so i don't know if that counts but that's something i'm definitely not going to be cheap on i don't know if you can go go cheap on airline wi-fi because typically it's just your standard you know one price there's no low level high level but i will splurge and get the internet wi-fi uh, on that because a lot of times i'm also doing work writing newsletters cutting up podcasts and stuff on the plane as well another one would be beer i'm not this guy that's going to tell you to go buy you know 20 dollar pack of ipas because they taste so much better than cords light or whatever and i feel like i'm past the age where dudes are just pulling up to you know social gatherings natural light and uh, what's the keystone, but I don't really go cheap on beer. Like I, 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 maybe this is, this is a younger person, uh, example, but like you got dudes now that's just like, what do you guys just want to split three ways of Bud Light? No, actually, I just like to go get my own. I prefer Coors Light myself, Bud Light, probably not the greatest example. If you kept the news up with the news cycle lately, but point being, it's like, no, I won't go three ways on a 24 pack with you. I'll just go get six or 12 Coors Lights and drink what I prefer to drink. So I never really go cheap on beer. Um, I would say the one cheap beer I probably enjoy is uh, Miller High Life Champagne of Beers. How could you not? I actually think that tastes pretty good, and it happens to be cheap. But I'm never buying beer because it's cheap now. 
Um, the closest I've gotten to considering going cheap on beer since was at uh, my good friend Michael Portner's wedding in New York. The hotel bar only sold $26, like sort of bottled tall boys of this random beer I'd never heard of. And that was not at the wedding. That was just at the hotel bar all week. I get it. Everything in New York is expensive, but that's the closest I've gotten to being like, hmm, should I go just go buy some Miller High Lives and like sneak them into this hotel bar and go that route? Uh, that's the only time I've ever gotten close to uh, being cheap on beer uh, after drinking three beers in my tab being 82 bucks or whatever the hell it was um, <laughs> at that hotel bar. Uh, not to put my guy Portner on blast. It was open bar at the actual reception, but uh, that hotel... The only thing they sold beer-wise was $26 large bottles, which just blew my mind. So don't go cheap on beer. Definitely toilet paper. I always splurge for the in-flight Wi-Fi. I can't really think of any others. If you have any feedback on something I missed that you definitely should never go cheap on, uh, please hit me up. But those are the only things that come to mind right now. Oh, television package is another one. So I haven't really had cable probably since college. We used to get direct TV in college. And just that was like the last like basic cable-ish satellite, whatever package I had. But now with the streaming, I just don't really go cheap. Um, you know, I have subscribed to a couple different places, uh, Fubo being one of them because they gave me for a while NFL Red Zone. I think that's changing this year. But I don't really mind paying extra to make sure I get all the channels. Or if like Ole Miss's game is behind the paywall, obviously I'm paying for that, but I'll pay for like other stuff too. You know, I have to have Red Zone. That's just my NFL watching crutch. I love it. I'll do whatever it takes to pay for that. So I will splurge on multiple TV packages to get the right amount of channels that I want. I'm just never going to take the time to sit there and go, well, could I be saving 20 bucks a month if I only subscribe to this and sacrifice this channel or make sure these are all bundled into one? I'm just too lazy and not smart enough to sit down and do that. So I will probably pay more than I should have for TV subscriptions or streaming subscriptions just to make sure that my dumb brain can go, you know, press two buttons and watch the games that I want to watch on a weekend basis. So that's another one, I guess. That's probably just wasteful spending. I don't know if that's going cheap, but that's another one. So anyway, appreciate the questions there. I think that covers it. From the Twitter questions, we'll hop to the message board ones first before or uh, next before we get out of here. Let's see. You want to make sure I didn't miss anything on the Twitter side. No, I did not. So we'll hop to the uh, loyal Rebel Grove subscribers for their questions. Uh, L Pruitt MS checking in here. If you had to do it for a random but legit reason, how long could you run at a steady jog? Oh, man. I did a 5K a couple years ago, and I made it through the entire 5K without stopping to walk, which honestly surprised myself because at that point I was at the end of college or maybe a year or two out. Guy was not in the greatest shape of all time, uh, not huge on hitting the gym. Uh, for those of you that have met me and know me in person, that may come as a huge shock given my large frame and gigantic muscles. But uh, not huge into that. So I'll go two miles. Like, it depends on what a jog is. I'm never going to be like, I won't cheat the system and basically do a walk that looks like a jog because you're hopping up and down more so than you would as a walk. But just your steady jog, I think I could go two miles. I think that's fair. I don't think that's exactly uh, overselling it either. That's not exactly some impressive feat by any stretch. So uh, I'll go a couple miles. I did a 5K a couple years ago, and that would be what I base my opinion off of. So I'll go two and a half miles. I think I could do two and a half miles without having, without having to tap out and walk for a second. So uh, your guy will not be running any Boston marathons and championing that anytime soon, but I'm also not 
hey, at 200 yards, I'm going to have to stop because I'm huffing and puffing. So that is probably a safe bet as it comes to that. Um, if that's too high or someone's like, no shot, this kid could run two miles without uh, stopping for a jog. Would love to hear your feedback. Don't really know what you'd be gauging that off of unless you've seen me run. But uh, hey, whatever. Let's see. Next question he had. What's one show you find yourself enjoying that most people would never guess? Try something outside of sports. Ooh. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. I don't really have a sophisticated palette of TV watching shows outside of sports. I'm a pretty basic guy. I watch a lot of sports. I like the NBA playoffs. I like Major League Baseball. There really aren't any sports that I don't like. Now, I'm, I'm not tuning into Major League Baseball games on a nightly basis, but if I'm sitting down to watch TV, it's probably going to be sports related, but I do watch other shows as well. I usually kind of lean on my uh, fiance MC to kind of get the wrecks going. Like, I know this is a sports one, but like we like the F1 documentary. We've watched Ted Lasso. We've done Yellowstone. We have done House of Cards until that last season after Kevin Spacey got canceled. It was already getting pretty dark. And then without him on the show, and this is not a pro Kevin Spacey thing. I don't really know what his situation is. I'm certainly not lobbying for the guy. But we ta we tapered off and I don't even ended up thinking finishing House of Cards after that uh because it just i couldn't get into it we've done a couple of uh, we like ted lasso again i know that's a sports related thing but it's not really a sports show 
Uh, Ted Lasso is one of those ones where like some of those cringeworthy people, like the internet posse, I'll call them, or internet uh, cult, uh, like tweeted about it a bunch. And like I went into it being like, I almost want to not like this, just so I know these people online that claim that their allegiance to Ted Lasso are full of it. But I really like the show. It's a really good show. I like Ted Lasso a lot. A lot. I'm a big documentary guy. I uh, I am fascinated by the 1980s cocaine cowboy drug cartel scene. I have probably read every single piece of content that there is, even a book or two, and watched every single documentary you could possibly imagine on the drug scene in the 1980s, from the Medellin cartel to the Cali cartel to the kind of home front, you know, the uh, Mickey Mondays of the world, the famous smugglers in Miami, Max Marmelstein, um, Oh, who was the who were the two boating brothers that ESPN did that thing on that ran a cartel operation? For whatever reason, I'm fascinated by that subject topic. I just think it's a fascinating time that doesn't really get talked about enough in history. Like Pablo Escobar was worth 20-something billion dollars. That would basically be like Elon Musk being the world's biggest drug trafficker of all time. It's just unbelievable to me that someone that rich and that powerful basically took over a, an entire country by himself because of this new drug that they discovered and basically revolutionized the mass shipment of drugs. Out Carlos later, Norman's K read a lot of stuff about that. I mean, there's just this island a hundred miles off the United States coast that he just bought and turned into a basically a gigantic drug airport and uh orgy partying scene for three years. So I'm fascinated by kind of that era in time in history. Um, so I've watched a ton of those. I'm a big civil war guy. I, I love a good civil war documentary. Um, and really just documentaries in general, they don't have to be sports related. If it's like content, I enjoy, I watched one the other night on the collapse of, uh, the financial collapse of 2007 or 2008 or whatever that was. So big documentary guy. Um, that's really all I can think of. I have a pretty bare palette outside of that. I'm not a big like fantasy, like fiction guy. Like I don't really like, uh, I'm not a big like fiction book guy. I don't really like movies that are non-realistic like for example or tv shows that are non-realistic for example uh game of thrones like i guarantee if i started and watched it i could see what it's about i could get into it like i'm not a hater in that sense where i'm like i don't understand why people like this just because i haven't watched it clearly game of thrones very popular they did an incredible job with it just not my cup of tea the dragons and stuff like that anything that's not realistic just does not pique my interest and that's not to say like oh yeah i'm I'm this big realist over here. Like, get out of here with your imaginary, imaginary fantasy stuff. Like, I, I get it. Like, if that's your genre of thing, I, like, I understand why. Like, that type of stuff is successful. It just doesn't pique my interest. So I'm not big into stuff like that. So I, that probably wraps up uh, that question because I doubt anyone wants to hear more about my TV consumption content. But things like that, um, documentaries, definitely drug cartel documentaries. That is uh, certainly a vice of mine in terms of television consumption. Deuce McAllister, 22, checking in on the message board. Are you really glad when someone asks you what Skybox Sports Picks really is or just lip service? Come on, man. You know the answer to that question. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? I'm glad you asked. And yes, I'm not a poser. I'm absolutely glad you asked. A uh, guy who runs that service is a good friend of mine. I don't know why I started doing I know I covered this at the top. I have no clue why I started covering the ad reads that day. Skybox and uh, LB's Greg were two of my first podcast sponsors and they've stuck with, they started it advertising with me before I got caught on with Rebel Grove. I just started this podcast on my own out in Dallas and no one was really listening. Um, and I was still, you know, 
oddly enough, it, it, it hasn't been, I haven't been doing podcasts that long. So I was still like new to the whole podcasting thing. I was far from a professional ad reader. So I just started saying that one day. I have no idea why it popped into my brain, but it's turned into a nice advertising play. Like I'm far from a conventional advertiser where it's like my ad reads are awesome. People subscribe to products that, that advertise with the show because of the way I read ads. That's certainly not the case. I don't have like the Richard Cross voice, but in a weird way, it's become kind of a notable thing. I'll see people out in public, particularly if I'm wearing a Skybox hat and they're like, Skybox sports picks. Glad you asked, huh? And I'm like, yeah, see? So it got kind of catchy. I have no clue how that started or why that I said that. I, the Skybox guys, did not tell me to say that. So that just kind of happened one day. But hey, you remember Skybox for it because you're wondering if I'm actually glad they asked. And no one's asking because it's me doing an ad read. So anyway, I don't know how that happened. But to answer your question, yes, I'm glad they asked. Sign up for a picks package today. That's what we in the biz like to call a promo. All right, here we go. Second question he asked, do you think Little Forest was actually Forest's son? Or do you think that Jenny just knew she was dying and needed a gullible rich Forrest to raise him? I got to tell you, man, I've seen Forrest Gump a couple times, but it has been a while and I did not take the time to brush up on the details surrounding this. But from the way I remember that being presented, I'm going to go with your second theory. I'm going to say that she needed a gullible rich Forrest to raise him because Jenny did not treat Forrest very well, if I remember correctly. So I'm not going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I know where I got one of my favorite podcasters, Ryan Rosillo, uh, is dying, dies on the hill that Pam was a bad character and was not a good person in the office. Kind of feel the same way about Jenny. And I think that one's a little more mainstream. I don't think anyone left that uh, movie thinking, man, love Jenny, great character. But uh, because of that, I'm going to say your second theory is correct. Probably not his kid. We should get him on Mari or RIP Jerry Springer. I guess too late for that now. Get them back on. Just get the whole you are not the father situation going. That would that would be great content. I feel like people would tune in for that. Probably not. I don't even know what the hell I'm saying. We're 45 minutes into a solo podcast. But I'm going to say he is not the father. All right. North Tampa Rebel checking in here off the Rebel Grove message board. And he chimes in and wonders if regulation was a thing in college football, which leagues would you – oh, excuse me, not regulation, relegate. I think you meant relegation. Yeah, yeah, you meant re relegation. I get what you're saying there. I I've had a few typos in my day as well. If relegation were a thing in college football, which leagues would you pair together? For example, bottom three SEC go down to the Sun Belt and their top three come up. Fascinating question here. And I think you're dead on with the, that was the first place I was going to go. Um, if you're looking at it from like a, like who should the big boy conferences pair up with in this scenario? I think the Sun Belt is a number one pick, and I don't even know who else is really in contention. The Sun Belt has become a very good football league, and I read an article about this a while back. I don't remember exactly where it was. Um, I think maybe Stephen Godfrey wrote it um, about the Sun Belt and how basically they have a good commissioner, very competent commissioner, and in this changing landscape of college football, he doubled down on regional rivalries, obviously football being an emphasis, and it's turned into a great product and they've invested in it. They've kept the kind of the close knit regional rivalries. The schedules make sense. And if you look at it now with the way the American got plucked off by the big 12 and I think another conference in there too. And then in turn, how the American has plucked teams from conference USA, every one of those leagues, including the big 12 have kind of diminished because of the trickle down effect, starting with the sec, obviously plucking Oklahoma and Texas, 
where the Sun Belt has added schools. They've been largely unaffected, uh, unaffected by, right? I mean, they they added Appalachian State. It was kind of a D two powerhouse for a long time, and they've 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 done a couple of those and been successful at that. You know, Georgia Southern they bring them up from D two. Or I say D two Division one A FCS whatever the hell it is you get my point. Then they had James Madison who had beaten several FBS programs including a Power Five program or two. They bring them into the mix. Louisiana Lafayette Billy Napier had a role in the last few years. Historically a pretty good program. And then when they did had to go add people, they added a South Alabama. Got it rolling down there with Kane Womack. Added Southern Miss. Um, you know, Will Hall doing a great job at Southern Miss. You know, you got Texas State and Troy in the mix there. Now, I think Troy, no, Troy's always, Troy's been in the Sun Belt. I don't think that was an addition. Sorry, I probably screwed that one up. But you got Troy and John Sumrall rolling. And I know, like, it just happens to be a very healthy league right now, but I think they're set up for long-term success. Coastal Carolina, every single one of these programs outside of mm, ULM and what they added, Marshall, I guess, from Conference USA this past year. Yeah, so they, the Sun Belt added, Marshall, USM, and I guess that's it. So those are the only two they added. Maybe I'm missing one in there. But point being, they add those two. Those are two historically pretty decent football programs. And then they've just kind of doubled down on the whole regional, you know, ULL, you got ULM. I think some incompetence by uh, Louisiana Tech and just the craziness that we saw with the Lane Burroughs. I I think the mindset of the Lane Burroughs Tarpgate embodies uh, La Tech in a way that has probably hurt them athletically uh, in the long run uh, because now they're stuck in a very dwindling Conference USA and they've had a pretty good football program yet have it moved up to a better league. Point being, I'm getting lost in the weeds on Sunbelt Corner over here, but Sunbelt is probably the number one pick in terms of the lower leagues to pair with the Power Five Conference. I think the next one, I guess, would probably be like the Mountain West. Um, I know the Mountain West is not what it once was because, you know, you got Boise State down, but it's still one of the better conferences. It's certainly better better than uh, better than Conference USA. I don't know at this point, if you look at the current AA, uh, American Conference members, like, is it really a better league? Or excuse me, is the American, which was considered kind of the in this first edition of realignment, you know, probably the Power Six Conference, right? Like they they were the power five light they didn't quite get the respect and credibility they deserved they went with the whole this was back when everyone thought tv markets mattered so they went and got cincinnati and ucf and smu big like schools in large markets uh usf in tampa a temple in philly tulane in new orleans tulsa not exactly a booming metropolis but a pretty major city um you know wichita things like that that was clearly calculated with you know east carolinas of the world um, mixed in. I guess that's really the only one that's done in a major metropolitan area. But now, you know, you got UC, uh, you've got uh, Cincinnati going to the uh, Big Ten. You've got UCF going to the Big Ten. And the replacements for that conference, um, no disrespect to Houston was another one, another major metroplex. Well, when the next iteration of realignment happened, what happened? Three of their most successful programs, Cincinnati, Houston and UCF all darted for the big 12 because there are openings in the big 12 and who could blame them. It's a better league, but who did they replace them with? They replaced them with Charlotte FAU, North Texas, UAB and UTSA. That's not exactly a one V one, no drop-off trade-off by any step of the imagination. And 
it's still a bunch of places that don't really make any sense from a geographical standpoint, where I think the Sun Belt has benefited from having regional rivalries that have become, you know, a lot of fun to watch. I mean, I, look, I, I don't know how many of you are kind of big college football, you know, nerds, hipsters, whatever you want to call it, diehards. But like there's, you know, an App State Coastal game. There's pretty good television uh, either last year or the year before, you know. ULL and Georgia Southern, usually pretty good television, particularly the last couple of years. And like they're both Southern schools, you know, same fan demographics that care about football in a similar way for those kind of intended to be power six schools or group of five schools that are not quite power five level. Whereas now it just feels like the AAC is just kind of a random hodgepodge of schools across the country. I mean, look, at think about it. You're going from Philadelphia to Boca to Tulsa to Tampa to everywhere in between Wichita, Kansas. Like it doesn't make any sense. And I think as the theory has been disproven that TV markets matter and large size TV markets matter in college sports, the AAC has been on the wrong side of that. We're investing in regional rivalries and having consistency instead of just massive turnover um, by the Sun Belt, I think they've been on the right side of it and the AAC has been on the wrong side of it. So I would go probably Mountain West and then the AAC third. Maybe I'm missing a league in there, but those would be the top three I would pair together. But conference realignment and how the smaller conferences have handled it is every bit as interesting to me as the big schools moving around and the Oklahomas and the Texas is going to the SEC. And I guess I'm somewhat interested in Cincinnati and Houston and UCF going to the Big 12. But for a Big 12 that was actually a pretty good conference the last couple of years, I don't think you're going to view the Big 12 the same as the Big 10 and the SEC. And honestly, with the way the Pac-12 is trending, I'll be interested to see. Well, I don't know. I'd be interested to see post-USC-UCLA. But, like, I think you're going to have a Power 3 in the – actually, a Power 2. Really, it's going to be the Big 10 and the SEC, a kind of middling three in the ACC if they continue to exist, the Big 12 and the Pac-12, who seemingly – have a the hourglass running out on their lives as a conference. And then I think you're going to have a couple of very stable group of five leagues in the Mountain West and the Sun Belt and, I don't know, maybe the AAC. But, you know, there's who's come out on the right end of all this and who come, who's come out on the wrong end has been fascinating to me. And so without getting further in the weeds into it in this you know, long winding rant, I think my top choice is if relegation was a thing, if I were a major conference, I'd be calling the Sun Belt first, the Mountain West second, and the AAC third would be my three answers. And I guess if you wanted me to add a fourth, I would just go with the Conference USA because after that, I don't even actually know who the hell <laughs> the other options would be at that point. Uh, Hattiesburg Reb checking in here as we continue down the message board questions. He said, or he, she, I I, don't, the, I forget you guys are all just message board usernames. Uh, this account asked, if you had to cover one of the pro sports franchises as a beat writer, what would you choose and why? This is a really good question. And I'll give you a couple different answers. If I was choosing a sport, I would probably go with the NFL because as a professional beat writer works, um, the Major League Baseball is a grind. Um, you know, I think the kind of running joke around Major League Baseball pre press boxes, like one thing you won't find, there's a wedding ring. And of course, that's a just brash generalization and more so a joke than anything else. 
but you're on the road a lot. I mean, if you have 181 or 161, I don't know where I got 181 from. One's 162 game season. My buddy Chandler Rome covers the Astros for the Houston Chronicle, just switched over to the Athletic. He's probably covering 120-ish of those, if I had to guess. And you think, oh, well, he gets 40 games off. That's nice. No, that's not a lot at all. If you look at it and how densely packed it is, it's 160 games in basically 180-something days, probably where I got that 181 number. That's a lot. It's a lot of travel. And if you're a young person, um, which I would guess I would still consider myself at 28 years old, um, and you weren't married and you don't have a wife or kids or a family, I think that'd be a pretty cool way to live. You get to see a lot of cool cities. You get to basically travel the country on your employer's dime. And also you're covering Major League Baseball as a job. Pretty good. But that's a grind in terms of travel. The NBA is similar, though the NBA, the kind of misnomer in that is that it's real popular on social media, but it's not that lucrative to cover from a beat reporting perspective if you're a small market team with the lack of history. And the way I would like the example I'd use for that is I don't think the Pelicans have a traveling beat writer. I don't think the person who covers them for the advocate travels to all 41 away games in the NBA. That's become a bit of a rarity. Brian Curtis at the ringer. He's a sports media reporter at the ringer. Did a, did a very interesting piece on this a couple of years ago. I think it was the, when the Pelicans were playing Maybe the Warriors in the playoffs, the last year of the AD run, and he interviewed at the time a guy named Scott Kushner, who is the beat writer for the Pelicans for the New Orleans Advocate. Well, Scott Kushner has a full-time job on top of that. He covers the Pelicans part-time, and the piece went into how Kushner you know, took time away from his day job to go cover the road games in that first round series on the road, but the fact that he doesn't travel that much, and then the piece used that as a larger example to basically point out that you know, the traveling NBA beat reporter is becoming more more and more of a rarity than the norm outside of your traditional franchises, right? The the, the Boston Celtics are always going to have a large traveling media contingent. The Philadelphia 76ers, the LA Lakers, the New York Knicks, you know which franchises I'm talking about. Whereas the Oklahoma City Thunder is probably not the greatest example because they seem to have a very large and loyal fan base. And I think the Oklahoma God travels and they have an independent site that travels but like, you know, the the Minnesota Timberwolves, how many of those guys, like, what, does the athletic guy, does their two newspaper guys, do they travel to every away game? I wouldn't think so. I don't think the commercial appeal guy for the Grizzlies goes to, I don't even know who it is anymore, goes to all of those games. And so I guess that would be a more appealing job if you didn't travel as much. But then I also wouldn't feel like I'm doing my job if I'm not. If I was a beat reporter, I would be want to be traveling on the road with the team, getting locker room access on the road, go covering tough road losses. I feel like that you would be at a little bit of disadvantage doing your job. And so that's a long-winded way of saying is if I was picking a sport, I'd cover the NFL because it's 16 games. It's the biggest North American sports league, one of the biggest sports leagues in the world. You're not traveling to those games is just not 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 a thing. Like everyone who covers the an NFL franchise for a reputable media outlet is going. And it's only 16 weeks plus the playoffs. So, you know, you get training camp starting at the end of July to August. But even if your team makes it all the way to the Super Bowl, you're done in February. And then you get March, April, May, June off in training camp. You're not really traveling anywhere. Like, I know you're covering training camp, but if it's anywhere close to where the city you're based out of, it's not exactly a huge grind. And so I think that would be the most palatable to cover. And so my pick would be the Miami Dolphins because I just think living in South Florida would be pretty awesome. Uh, I think, you know, it'd be a little bit more 
Weather's great in Southern California. My guy Portner lived in Newport Beach. Every time I went and visited him, I just wanted to move there because it seemed like every day is perfect, but not exactly the most realistic, expensive place. L.A. in general is pretty expensive. Um, different type of, uh, I would say, politics in terms of you know cost of living and things like that. So I'd probably go with the Miami Dolphins. That would probably be my dream beat to cover. To cover an NFL team and to live in South Florida, I think, would be pretty cool. So that would be my pick. Now, to bring a real answer to this question, I'm not actually sure I would ever do that. And look, no one's beaten down my door these days to ask me to cover their professional sports franchise. But um, I actually had this conversation with Portner the other night. He was in Cincinnati doing something with Orlando. And he's like, what? Like, if if some team offered you a position or media outlet to cover one of these NFL teams, like, which one would you want to do? Basically asked the same question. And I was like, dude, I don't know if I would do it anymore. I'm very content and very happy with um, – with where I'm at, I get to do this podcast. I have a great listenership uh, that you guys have made possible. I have a newsletter to where I can write about whatever I want to write about. I can podcast about whatever I want to write about, or excuse me, podcast about, I guess, write about Trippy writes, right? That name doesn't make any sense. And I get weekends off and can go to games with my family and, you know, hang out and be a normal person and, you know, drink overpriced beer in the stands, just like the rest of the folks. And also have a full-time job that has a lot, look, I'm no financial genius by any stretch of the imagination, but for a company where I don't really have to worry about, is my job going to be there um, through the next round of layoffs in six months? And I don't have to work weekends and there's way more growth opportunity. Look, I mean, I'm not breaking any major news here, but the media industry is not really a very financially lucrative industry outside of if you score a major television gig, congrats to you. There is still tons of money in that, but I think some people would be surprised at the salaries of what even national writers for different publications make that aren't regularly doing television. Um, and look, money's not everything in the world, but I just I think that's important to point out in all of that. And so, you know, again, I'm not exactly batting away opportunities to go cover professional sports teams, but one of the things that kind of the super talk layoff and transitioning into another role and then starting up this side hustle that has grown, you know, beyond my wildest dreams. And I owe Chase and Neil in tremendous debt of gratitude for that is I'm pretty content with doing exactly what I'm doing and writing some of the long form stuff and not having to work weekends and, you know, having a normal social life. So that'd be my pick though. I honest to God, like I'll put it to you this way. And this is again, no one from the Miami Herald or anywhere else is calling me to cover the dolphins. But if that phone call actually came, I swear to God, I think I'd say no. Um, and I don't know what that says about me or where I'm at in life, but I really do. I think I'd just say no, I'm good. Because uh, I don't know. My interests are more in telling human interest stories, doing the podcast and things like that, and not having to go sit in a stuffy press box and meaningless media availabilities for six months out of the year. So again, another long-winded answer that probably no one wanted, but oh well. Uh, Orange Beach Rebel. Reb checks in on the message board and asks, his question is, what's the one rule in NFL football that you wish college would adopt? Same with the NBA and college basketball. Great question here. Uh, and I think college football, uh, my answer is one they just adopted. I don't mind the running clock. I've never really understood why in the college football, uh, the clock stops after first downs. I think it creates undeserved opportunities for teams to come back in games and look from an entertainment perspective. Yes. Do you always want teams in the mix? And like, I'm not arguing that games should be ending earlier and team like games should be decided earlier, but it just kind of breeds unnecessarily chaos, unnecessary chaos. And I think it rewards teams far too much because it gives you so much more time to come back despite sucking it up or stinking for three 
and a half quarters of a football game. And those games are just too long. And I'm, I'm not a big, like, get me out of here quicker complainer guy. Um, I think what the MLB has done with the pitch clock, I think is good. It makes ba- baseball more interesting, more action, more fast pace. that and the elimination of the shift and, you know, putting more emphasize on running and stealing bases again, what a novel concept, but in turn has made the game shorter. And I think that's a good thing. And I just don't see any reason why a college football game should last three and a half to four hours. Like there's a reason the NFL has the best product on earth. They, there's a reason that every single Sunday you have 12 o'clock games, you have 305 games, you have 325 games, and they do not push the start times. They do not delay the start times. They do none of that. And it works seamlessly every single week. It's because they know exactly how long their games are going to be. And so I think a running clock, even if you pick up a first down and don't go out of bounds outside of whatever, last three minutes, last two minutes, whatever it is, of each half is a good rule. So that would be the rule that be my first answer. But since they've already adopted that, I will give you a real answer. I'll go with, hmm, trying to decide which of the two here I want to have a take on. I'm going to go with the overtime rules. I, I don't know the college overtime, particularly now. Look, I think there's some novelty concept to the college overtime where it's kind of cool that you just, you know, after you play four quarters and if you're tied and each team gets the ball in the 25, but I do find it gimmicky. And particularly now after the second overtime, it turns into just a two point conversion fest. I, I just, I don't understand how that reflects how the previous three hours of battle on a football field um, like, I don't see how that lines up with that at all. Like you get to a third overtime and all of a sudden it's just gonna be two point plays. Like you just battered it out for a hundred plus plays. Like that, is that really what's going to be what decides a game? I don't understand that. And so I think I would like to see college football adopt an NFL playoff style overtime system where you basically just play another quarter and the first team, if they score a touchdown, the other team gets a chance to counter. Um, that would be my, I think that would be the best way to decide football overtime while keeping in mind safety, right? Like you couldn't go the soccer route and just do soccer cracks me up as I've gotten more in soccer, of course, because of soccer corner, they just, in some of their overtime formats, when they don't, they can't enter the draw, uh, they just go, we're going to play another 30 minutes. It's not golden goal or sudden death, I guess. See, I'm picking up the terminology. It's just, we're going to play 30 more minutes. I don't think you could do that in football from a safety perspective, but uh, it is interesting. But anyway, I just think I, I think the best way to decide it, the fairest way to decide it is if college football adopted the NFL playoff style overtime rules. The other one I was deciding in between was one foot versus two feet. I don't understand it, uh, as far as a catch. No one seems to know what a catch is in the NFL. For whatever reason, we don't have that problem in college. But like if you don't know what a catch is, then why at the college level do we have different set of rules for what it is than at the NFL? Like it's at least let's at least get the two feet thing down. And then that made me think of, I probably missed the most obvious one, but it's not really an answer because the NFL hasn't adopted this. The fumbling it out of the back of the end zone being a touchback is the dumbest rule in sports. It de- de-incentivizes you reaching out to try to stretch for the pylon and score a touchdown. It, it The punishment does not remotely fit the crime. So this is not what your question was, but I, I would like to see that change at all levels of football. Why that was ever a rule is beyond me. I'm guessing it's something that happened when they played with leather helmets and the end zones were different and, it probably made sense at the time, but hey, we live in a much different world than we did in the 1940s. You know, we got uh, you know cable television and the internet and great things like that. Probably time to change that rule. So there's a couple answers for you on that. Appreciate your submission. And to, I think this is the last one, maybe the second to last, I'll check. But uh, GJG23 from the message board checking in. Do you like professional wrestling? 
Uh, no, I don't watch it. I don't understand it. I don't understand anything about professional wrestling. Uh, it's just not not my thing. Again, it's clearly immensely popular. My old uh, radio co-worker, Brian Haydad, loves professional wrestling. I have plenty of people in my life that love professional wrestling. I, I don't understand it um, at all. Um, because the second part of this guy's question was, if the answer is no, then why are you lying about liking professional wrestling? I, I it's just not, I, I don't understand it. I, I, I get it. It's like, a, I guess it's like a soap opera type thing, but like who, I don't who decides who wins? Is there someone writing a script? Like, I feel like if it was advertised as reality TV versus professional wrestling, I could get behind it a little more, but I don't understand what makes a good wrestler. I don't understand what makes a bad wrestler. Clearly it's not a competition. The outcomes are fixed. So who's writing the script? Who decides who's a world champion and who's not? Who decides who gets to fight who? Who decides any of that thing? I just, I don't understand it. It is such a foreign concept to me. I, I honestly, like if you watch professional wrestling for a long time, one, I get why you like it. You follow, probably followed the storylines for a while. You've had seen great wrestlers come and go. But I don't understand the guys that get into professional wrestling now. How do you pick up in professional wrestling now and decide, oh, I love this. This is awesome. I just feel like you're missing out on so many like, intricacies of it because you haven't watched it for a decade so i i, I don't get it i i don't understand it at all it is not my thing I, i'm not a hater again i don't really hate on a lot of most of the things i don't like because if it's something that's immensely popular that's not for me clearly there's a reason that it's popular you know shockingly i have an open mind for even for things that uh i don't enjoy myself but that's one i just i don't get it at all i don't get the appeal i can't imagine going to spend 200 bucks on something where you're like, all right, let's see who, and, you know, it's fake violence and let's just go see who they decided the writers or the people behind the screen or whoever. That's the thing. There's not even a judge. Like if it was one of those things, I don't understand competitions like gymnastics and stuff where it's just left to three or four people to judge, like like a more mathematical way to decide an outcome in a con contest. But it's not even that, like who's deciding it? Maybe I'm just ignorant. Maybe there is a governing body that decides it. But I don't understand anything about professional wrestling, and therefore I will not be tuning in. But if that's your thing, more props to you, man. That's why they made chocolate and vanilla and whatever the hell else the saying says. All right. Last one he had here. Will you stick with Brentford next season? Please don't drop Soccer Corner. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where have you heard this information? Soccer Corner's not going anywhere. It is here to stay. It's the perfect thing ever. It's so funny to me with Soccer Corner is – Weldon, when I first started doing the podcast at Weldon, that was before the 2021 football season. And I was trying to find like some common ground and chemistry between the two of us outside of like just us talking about Ole Miss football. I've probably told this story on the podcast before, but when I was, when Rebel Grove, when I came on to Rebel Grove and the podcast started uh, being put under the Rebel Grove umbrella, I... That summer, clearly because the audience was just exponentially larger, I was like, all right, like I need to kind of up my game here. And so I wanted to follow the model, not exactly copy like Bill Simmons, but I was like, this is going to work best if I'm not, if we're going to talk football, we're going to talk Ole Miss basketball, and we're going to talk Ole Miss baseball, it's not going to be a very good podcast if I'm the smartest guy on the podcast. And so I had Bracken already from basketball one of the sharpest basketball guys ever has been a staffer at the d1 level and then i had colin the world's biggest college baseball nerd who was of large reason the podcast was even you know attractive enough for someone like rebel grub to want to take it on but i didn't have a football guy 
And Weldon and I were friends in college. We were fraternity brothers. He was a year younger than me. I knew Weldon. And then I kind of knew him from a semi-professional standpoint of he was working on staff uh, in the Matt Luke era in a time where I'm a 23, 24-year-old reporter with no sources. So I started talking to him a decent bit more. He gets out. And point being, I'm entering that summer. And I'm like, man, I don't have a football guy. I don't really know which way to turn. I need someone that's worked in it, that knows football. And Weldon, actually, the day I was thinking about it, it just happened to reach out to me at that time. And was like, hey, do you know any way I could get into like the media side or the podcasting? It's just something I'd like to do. And I was like, oh, buddy, this is the greatest timing ever. How about this? So anyway, we started that 2021 uh, fall camp. And at the time, I'm trying to get a feel for it. I'm like, is this going to work? Is he actually any good on a microphone? Like, you know, I because like, look, I love Weldon and this is in no way a question. Now, he's been terrific and such an asset for this podcast. But like if he hadn't have been very good and things hadn't like gone well, I'd have absolutely like found someone that was like I just value the quality of content, um, you know, above anything else. I think you guys, if you're going to tune in and listen to it, deserve that. And of course, that question's been long, long put to bed. But I was kind of trying to find like, you know, get welding more acclimated, more comfortable, and then like, hey, like, you know, take his interest into mind. And so he was a big EPL guy. And I don't remember what happened. I think he better like mentioned soccer on the podcast. He's a big man, you guy, a couple of times early on there, early in uh on the show, like multiple shows in a row. And so we just started talking soccer. And I was like, all right, I'll throw my guy here a bone. He's doing a good job. Let's do soccer corner at the end. And so it turned out, obviously, as a what guys don't get now is I'll get messages from folks that are like, can't believe you guys didn't talk about the West Ham uh, Arsenal game the other day. And like it's it's got it turned into something to where it's so funny. It's like it started out as an ironic segment. It was supposed to be me, the ignorant American who watches no soccer, has no clue who 60 to 70 percent of the teams are in the Premier League. Asking someone who does watch soccer, but who is not an expert on like the strategy of, you know, the beautiful game by any stretch questions about the EPL and kind of making fun of how they sack managers and injuries and that they draw and things like that. It was an ironic segment. And then like as it kind of grew and I guess we got new listeners like some people, I guess, like never got the memo on that. So they're like, I can't believe you guys didn't talk about this or like you really think that this team can finish top four. And it, like I'm looking at these emails or these DMs. I'm like, of course I don't think that, dude. I don't know anything about this sport. Like that started off as a joke. But then what it's evolved into is as I we got further and further into it, it's really, I would say, started in the last three months or I'd say three months, six months. This last EPL season, I've actually started watching the EPL. And I know I've mentioned it every time Weldon and I do a soccer corner now. But like most Saturdays and Sundays now, I'll flip on an EPL game on a Saturday or Sunday morning and it started out as just like, all right, I'll flip it on. The announcers are kind of funny and I'll get stuff done around the house. And then I don't know if it's like close match or whatever. I'll tune in for the last, you know, lock in for the last 20 minutes and just actually like watch, watch it. But it's kind of the point now it's like kind of appointment viewing for me. And it's made me enjoy and appreciate soccer more. And you know, I used to be the number one soccer hater of all time. I like uh, when I was on radio, Borky and Haydad loved soccer, loved it. Like Haydad's Chelsea guy. Borky loved the U.S. men's national team. Um, and I, I would I was the number one hater of just like, oh, yeah, this next generation of American soccer that are coming, huh? We've only heard that for a decade. Oh, what an incredible sport. You watch 90 minutes and you get one goal. Like I was the hater of all haters. And this has probably changed my stance on a lot of the stuff we've talked about, whether it's wrestling, 
or whatever else we discussed where even if it's not for me, I'm not going to hate on it. That probably opened my eyes to it to where I kind of like it. I, I, not kind of. I actually like the EPL a lot. I'm never going to be the guy that's going to tell you what formation a team should play or can't believe they signed this guy. But I'm slowly getting there and slowly keeping up to where I actually feel like I kind of have a decent handle on what's happening in the English Premier League on a weekly basis, which I never thought I'd get to. So then reality, what started is like a – ironic segment has turned into a halfway real segment of just let's let these two chump Americans chop it up about soccer. And it's become one of the more enjoyable pieces of podcast content that I've done. I look forward to watching soccer corner. I, I to doing soccer corner. I text Weldon about like EPL matches now. And like a year ago, I would never have thought that that was ever going to be a thing I'd ever do. I never thought I would actually like, watch a soccer match from start to finish ever. It was just supposed to be making a joke but like now, I think part of the reason that Soccer Corner is at a longer shelf life is that he's interested in it. Now I'm kind of interested in it, too. So we kind of give this halfway serious analysis or discussion on the English Premier League because we both watch it. And so that's been one of the cool things about it is, is I found another sport that I like and enjoy following. And the dynamics of it are fascinating to me with the relegation and, you know, tr- uh, the not transfer. What is it? Lo- yeah. Transfer window. Right. Go oh. British. That's one thing they did better than us. They invented the transfer portal, things like that. It's become fascinating to me. And it's something that now I enjoy and enjoy following very casually. And, you know, when you work in sports and everything is so serious all the time and I have to feel like I know the most about Ole Miss or be locked in or have good information on different things, I can just watch soccer and just be like, I don't know what's going on here from a strategy standpoint. I don't really know the players, even though I'm learning more of them. I can just watch it as a dumb chump fan and enjoy it. And that's been really enjoyable to me as I've transitioned out of the sports world full time. So that was a long winded rant of kind of giving you the evolution of soccer corner, but that's probably given it more staying powers. The fact that we're both interested in it. So long winded way of saying, I don't know what information you got, man. Soccer corner is better than ever. That is never going away. And it's funny too, because you get listeners that sometimes say, you know, I love the podcast, but I'm out when it comes to soccer. I'm like, okay, that's not an insult to me. Like there's a, there's a reason we put it at the end of the show. We do our old Miss stuff that people tune into. We cover that. And then we do soccer corner at the end. And if you, if you don't want to listen to soccer corner, that is in no way hurting us from a listenership standpoint. Like no, if it, I, I, you dirty little secret here, you already click play. I already got your money for the listenership, even though it's free, like point big, it's not affecting any sort of listenership numbers. So, you know, if you don't like it in the show before, when we wrap up or stop listening, when we wrap up the old miss talk. And if you do like soccer corner, then stick with us for the last 15 minutes. You know, there's a little something for everybody there. So, that's kind of how that happened. And to the second part of your question, yeah, I'll stick with Brentford. I'd be a fair weather fan not to. Granted, my I've had a wandering eye as Saudi Castle has just become a major force being uh, bought by the Saudis and apparently having money, which is another wild aspect of things. But no, I would be, it would go against everything Soccer Corner stands for, for me to disavow the Brentford Bees and move on to someone else. That's just, that's a fake fan. That's just not what I'm about. I'm, you know, I'm a pitch Grasshead, oh, that doesn't sound great. Grasshead, that that could have very connotations. I don't know what you call uh, the soccer version of a seam head. Um, as I stumble through this joke here, but uh, that would just—I'm a, I'm a lifer. I'm a true football fan. Been a long time fan of the beautiful game for a whole eighteen months now. I can't switch teams. It's Brentford for life. Even though half the time I'm like, damn, I wish I followed this team. But anyway, so no soccer corner not going in there, and uh, I am a Brentford B till we die or until they get relegated, then I feel like I'll have to pick a new team. So soccer corner, 
better than ever, never going away. And uh, it's been a fun interaction with a uh, certain segment of the listenership who uh, love the EPL. So another one of the many cool things I've really enjoyed doing about this uh, regard or uh, related to this podcast. So that'll wrap it up for Mailbag Friday. That was probably way too much of just me talking. So uh, if you saw this and got 10 minutes in or you aren't listening now, sorry. Uh, if you did enjoy it, you're welcome. We brought back Mailbag Friday. We brought back the People's Holiday. Probably not going to become a regular thing because I don't think people tune in this podcast just to hear me talk for an hour and 20 minutes. Hell, I don't even think my fiance enjoys that piece of it, but or would want to hear me talk that much. But hey, it's what you got today. We're in a contact content lull a little bit, but we'll be back with three great pods for you next week. Thanks for listening. As always, I hope you are already having a terrific weekend and uh, we'll holler at you with Colin Brister on Sunday. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.